If you have a Bible today and want to open it to where we left off, we left off in Colossians chapter 1. We'll pick up in a few moments with verse 18. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to pick up. Remember, I left a copy of the entire book of Colossians on the information table. It has no verse numbers. It looks like a letter. This was a letter. We've said that several times. If, If you don't have your Bible with you, if you want to grab that, Grab that, bring it home, read it over and over again. It's just a letter. You're going to be reading uh, some Christmas letters in, in the coming month. How many people still send letters with Christmas cards? How many people even still send Christmas cards? It's kind of a, a dying breed, but those of us that get them, I think, enjoy reading them. We've been making our way very slowly through this letter on Sunday mornings. I encourage you to read the whole thing in one sitting. You can do it in 15 or 20 minutes. But on Sunday mornings, we're just going to go very slowly, take a line or two or three at a time. And so last week, we left off halfway through what I told you was a poem, actually. A poem that the Apostle Paul wrote about Jesus. Well, we don't know if he composed it, but he includes it in his letter, a poem about Jesus. We only got halfway through the poem. The first half of the poem tells us essentially that Jesus rules over all creation. And we talked about how clear it was that Paul was specifically thinking about Jesus's authority over other powers. He references spiritual powers and spiritual forces, but he really spends most of his time talking about Jesus's authority over human authority figures. And I think the message from last week, just to kind of recall a little bit, because we're going to dive in halfway through this poem. The message from last week is that growing up means recognizing what real strength looks like. It means recognizing what real authority looks like. When I'm a child, I might think that my big brother is the strongest man in the whole world. When I'm a little boy, I might think that my daddy could probably beat Mike Tyson in a boxing match because my daddy is the strongest guy I could ever even conceive of. Do we remember what that's like as little kids to have this very small perspective on what strength and what power and what authority looks like? And this is why little boys have these great hypothetical questions about who would win in a fight between Superman and Mighty Mouse and things like that because we really don't have a very well-formed idea idea of the scale and the scope of what strength actually is. We can only conceive of what we've only ever experienced. Part of the growing up process, I think, is recognizing that there is a strength that far exceeds anything that I've ever experienced in my little child-sized world. And that applies spiritually as well. We think about the authorities that we know in this world. We think about the powers and the forces and the strengths and the strongholds that we know in this world. And growing up spiritually is this process of recognizing that there is a power. There is an authority that far exceeds anything we've ever known before. And Paul says that authority is Jesus. He is that strength. He rules over anything and everything that we could ever imagine. And having set that idea in place in the first half of the poem, Paul kind of transitions into the second half of the poem about Jesus. I'm going to do what I did a week ago, which is to share this poem with you, but because rhythm and rhyme in poetry tend to not survive the translation process, we're going to just read it as a paragraph, as if Paul was writing just part of his letter. Here it is, beginning in Colossians Chapter 1, verse 18. 
Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And that's the end of his poem. So the first half of the poem tells us that Jesus rules over all of creation. And this, the second half of the poem, brings that principle even closer to those of us who follow Jesus because it's telling us that in the church, it all starts with Jesus. In the church specifically. See, the first half of the poem Paul has to set up the main idea that Jesus has authority over everything. And now he says, for those of us, for those of you, he's writing to a church, right? For those of you that follow Jesus, let's zero this and let's bring it home. Let's bring it home. What does this specifically mean to us? It means that in the church, it all starts with Jesus. We sang it a little bit earlier this morning, didn't we? We sang that song, I referenced it a Sunday ago, Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at the center of it all. And we sing through two or three different verses of that song. The last one is Jesus at the center of your church. We start with Jesus at the center of it all, but we zero it in a little bit to Jesus specifically at the center of your church. The song follows the same progression as Paul's poem does. We are living today, this is very timely, I think, because we are living today in a season where many churches like ours are in the process of rebuilding things that were impacted by the pandemic and by everything else that we've been through over the last couple of years. Church is not the same as it used to be. I used to not have to reference the live stream when I got up here, right? There's a lot of things that just aren't the same as what they used to be. And in many churches, uh, attendance is down. In many churches, finances are down. Volunteerism is down. The commitment level is down. And so it's a season of rebuilding. We've used that word right here at HRCC, haven't we? The temptation for church leaders who are tasked with rebuilding is to ask questions like, well, how can we grow the budget? Or what will draw more people out? Or how can we get back to normal? That's the temptation. But I believe there are far more biblical questions that we need to be asking in this time about our churches. Questions like, how is Jesus glorified? And how is the mission of Jesus being carried out? That's the question we need to ask if it all starts with Jesus. You see, churches can rely on all sorts of things to keep themselves moving. Big churches might be able to rely on, on huge programs, big budgets, beautiful buildings, and professional scale marketing. Small churches have their advantages too, don't they? Small churches can re- rely on a, a, a direct community presence. They can rely on local tradition. This is the church in the town. They can rely on the faithfulness and the commitment level and the loyalty of long-standing members, maybe families who have been in the church two or three or four generations back. 
But we have learned over the course of the last two years that all of those things are far more fleeting than they seemed. In a moment, everything can change. In a New York minute, anybody want to sing with me? Everything can change in a New York. That wasn't in my notes. I probably shouldn't have said that. Anything can change. Anything can be shaken. None of it lasts. None of it lasts unless it all starts with Jesus. And here's why. It's because he's the means of formation. He's the means of formation. Let me ask it this way. Did anybody ever ask you why you go to church? You know? Hey, Juan, why, why, do, you, why do you even go to church? I, I see you get up every Sunday morning, you and Wendy, you know, do your thing. Like, why do you, you're so faithful. Like, I get it. Jesus is cool. But why do you go to church? Anybody ever ask you that question? Have you ever given any thought to why we even gather for worship in the first place? I mean, can't we all worship on our own? Can't we log in, you know, and hear, hear a decent message? Like, why do we even bother to do this thing? Let me ask you what I think is an even better question. Not why do we gather, how? How do we gather? How, how do we gather? Like, maybe I'm overthinking this here, but in, in, what, in what universe do Dan Martinson and Don Schwartz and Kim Pullis end up in the same room for an hour and a half. Like, where does that happen? How did that happen that we ended up together? How does that happen? How do we gather? And I think there's a lot of valid answers to questions like that. You know, we go to church because we love God. Uh, we go to church because we enjoy the fellowship. We, we like getting to know other people. Uh, we go to church because it's an important habit. It's an important tradition. Our families did it. We grew up doing it. We want to continue to do it. It feels right, right? We go to church because we want to learn more. There's, there's things there that we feel like we can learn. All of these things and, and probably a dozen other answers we could put on top of them, they have some level of importance. But there is a much more foundational reason behind the very existence of the church. And I think it's even more important to keep this one in mind. Paul references it in verse 18. He says this, Christ is also the head of the church. And that's his reason. Let me tell you what I mean. Because when we hear the word head of the church, I think most of us think, oh, he's in charge. And he certainly is in charge. We hear the word head and we think authority because that's how we use the word head. This is actually a really interesting line in scripture. And if you were to really want to geek out on it and, and, and read what different historians and theologians have written through the years, you would find article after article after article. Because this is one of those places in scripture where the intent of the original language is a bit uncertain. You see, the problem is in that the ancient writings of the New Testament era, not just the New Testament, but other literature we have from this culture in this time, we have references to people in authority, but they never use the word head. 
We use the word head to describe somebody who's in charge of something, right? We talk about the head of household. We say Maria is the head of marketing at her job, and, and uh, Garrett is the head of the youth group, and, and different. We use the word head to describe somebody in authority. They didn't do that in New Testament times. The word head was not used, as best we can tell, to talk about authority and being in charge. Had, in other writings that we're aware of, is a metaphor to describe the source of something. And that's where we get terms like when we talk about a river. Where does a river flow from? What's the source of the river? It's the headwaters. This is the idea of head. And so when Paul says Christ is the head of the church, he is saying Christ is the reason that we come together. He's the source of why this thing even exists. He's the only reason that we are. Christ is the head. Parenthetically, elsewhere, when Paul writes uh, about households, that the husband is the head of the wife, we need to understand it in this context as well. Paul certainly isn't saying every husband is in charge of every wife. That couldn't possibly be the case because just two sentences earlier, he said, husbands and wives, y'all need to learn to submit one to another. So it wouldn't make sense that two lines later he would say, and by the way, the husband is always in charge and the wife has to do anything he says because he's the head. That wouldn't make sense. Paul is talking about how in his culture, Marriages didn't happen because two people went out on a couple of dates and kind of thought, ooh, this is kind of cool. Would you go steady with me? And then they sat down and they looked at their finances together and they got to know each other's parents and somebody bought a ring and they invited all their friends and declared their love to each other. That's how marriage works in our world. But in Paul's world, marriage would happen more often because a man said, I believe I'd like to marry her and he worked out a deal with her family, right? Now that's not to say there wasn't love, that's just to say the marriage wouldn't happen if the husband hadn't made a choice. He's the head, he's the source, he's the reason. In the same way, Paul says Christ is the head, he's the source, he's the reason for the church. He's the reason that we have even gathered in the first place. He's the one who has made it possible. The church doesn't exist if it weren't for Christ's choice. And here's what all of this means for us as we gather as the church. You can say church with a lowercase c and talk about just this congregation. Or you can say church with a capital C and talk about the entire world, the church universal. In either case, here's what this means for us. As we gather, we gather for one reason, because Christ has called us. Because Christ has called us. He has made it possible. How many of us remember at the end of an episode of, of Sesame Street? It's okay, you can, you can admit it, you can acknowledge it. Today's program has been brought to you by the letter D, the letter Q, and the number seven. <laughs> Right? Am I right? That's the end of, of, of Sesame Street. Well, here's the point. Today's worship service has been brought to you by Jesus. We may be the body of Christ, but without Christ, we're no body. Come on now, you could put that on a bumper sticker, right? We may be the body of Christ, but without Christ, we're no body. He's the reason. He's the source. He's the means 
of formation. But his, his role in that regard, his role as the source, the foundational reason for the church's existence, that's not the only reason that we say it all starts with Jesus. There's also this. He's the means of subjugation. He's the means of subjugation. Now, maybe you don't like the word subjugation. I kind of got a little OCD on this. I wanted all words that end with T-I-O-N. And so I came up with subjugation. If you would prefer, like if you have a greater measure of grace in your life than I do, you could just write in the word victory. He's the means of victory. But I I, I struggle when things start to line up and I kind of force the issue there. He's the means of subjugation. He's the means of victory. I wrote this in my notes and then I started singing the old hymn. Oh, victory in Jesus. Okay. Here's what I want to talk about. There's an important shift that I think some of us need to make in our understanding of why we go to church. For many people in the world, Christian or otherwise, the pursuit of religion is something they undertake because they are hoping for something more. They're hoping, they're pursuing something more. Most religions are set up this way. I'll tell you what I mean. Muslims are seeking a reward from Allah. They don't have it yet. They're looking for a reward from Allah. Jews are seeking a Messiah. They don't have their Messiah yet. They are looking for the Messiah. Hindus are seeking enlightenment. They don't have it yet. They're looking for enlightenment. Buddhists are seeking nirvana. They don't have it yet. They're trying to achieve something that they do not have. In every case, achieving the goal means victory over pain. It means victory over suffering. It's all these things that people are looking for, but the victory is always something that is still in front of you. It's always something that you're still striving for. Here's the shift we need to make. According to the Bible, Christians gather because the victory has already been won. Do you see how we're different? Next time somebody says to you, aren't all religions basically the same? Go, (laughs) no, 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 no. Christians gather, hear it again, because the victory has already been won. Now you might still be seeking something. We all are, right? I don't want you to hear that and go, oh, this is as good as it gets. (laughs) I must be in the wrong place. Maybe I am Buddhist. I don't know. No, that's not what we're talking. You might be, you are, you are still seeking something. We, We seek healing. We seek deliverance. We seek freedom. This is why we pray. This is part of why we do what we do. But here's the shift we need to make in our understanding. Hear this. According to the Bible, those things that we seek are the spoils of a battle that has already been decided, right? Do we understand that? The spoils of a battle. To the victor belong the spoils, right? So we are hoping for something that hasn't been decided yet. That's why the Bible talks about people who grieve without hope, okay? We are hoping for something that hasn't been decided yet. We are standing in victory waiting for the spoils to arrive. Do we see the difference? Yeah, you, come on. That's right. You, you, everybody, give me a little of this right now. Come on, bring it. Bring it, Jesus. Bring it, Jesus. Bring it, right? That's us, right? We are waiting for the spoils of a victory that has already been won. Let me apply this. Whatever you are struggling with, whatever you are seeking today, whatever you are hoping for, you need to hear this declared over you in this moment. Jesus has already won. 
Jesus has already won. If you are in Christ, change your way of thinking. You are not in search of a victory. If you are in Christ, you are not still looking for a victory. I'm all about the music today. You too, right? I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Not so, says the follower of Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are not still searching for a victory. You are merely waiting for the spoils of a victory that has already been won. And so in your prayer time, as you struggle, and I know many of you are struggling, you are wrestling with things, right? This is how we do it. In your prayer time, I want you to start that prayer by saying, Jesus, I know you are victorious. Wow, what a shift in perspective in our faith, right? Jesus, I know you are victorious. Jesus, I know that you are victorious. And it all starts with you. I know you are victorious. We know that because we know that he is the means of salvation. Isn't he? You can read it on most any uh, bridge abutment on the highways, right? Jesus saves. Jesus saves. It's a little bit more eloquent in the book of Acts chapter 4 where we read, There is no other name by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. Jesus is the means of salvation. Now, when we talk about being saved, and we talked about this at length three or four weeks ago, didn't we? Maybe five or six weeks ago now that I think about it. When we talk about being saved, most of our minds go immediately to heaven. And that's okay. We, we talked about heaven uh, a bit ago. But the Bible says there's so much more to salvation than that. There's so much more to the the state of being saved or the process of being saved. There's so much more than we'll all end up in heaven at some point. Salvation is not limited to your address in eternity. Being saved has everything to do with your relationship to God right now. Right now. And Paul says that God has already taken care of that relationship through Jesus. That's what we mean when we say he is the means of salvation. Let me read it to you. It's in verse 20. It says, through him, God reconciled everything to himself. Through him, Jesus, through Jesus, God reconciled everything to himself. Let's bring it home. Let's apply it. What that means is that if you're part of the church that Paul is describing here, If you are part of the people of God, then you are part of that everything. You are part of the everything that he has reconciled to God. And if you aren't, if you aren't, then the good news for you today is that the entire church exists purely for your benefit. We are here to represent the one who is reconciling you to God. Good news, good news, right? In the church... Nothing is more important than the work of Christ in the lives of people who are still far from God. Nothing can be more important than the work of Christ in the lives of people who are still far from God. That work must always remain central to the church. I try so hard not to talk too much about sports when I preach, but sometimes, sometimes I just have to. 
I know we aren't all Bears fans in this room, but I am praying for you. <laughs> At the end of last season, the Bears had another spectacularly mediocre football season, right? They had won a bunch of games early in the season, and things were looking like they might be kind of bright. And then they went on a six-game losing streak. You can go on a six-game losing streak in baseball, even in basketball or hockey. It's rough, but it's a relative blip on the scope. It is hard work to lose six football games in a row, let me tell you. It is hard, hard work to lose six football games in a row. The Bear Down Chicago Bears, we did it last year. Hallelujah. There was, right? Six in a row. Just absolutely tanked the season. It was terrible. And so at the end of the season, the Bears president of football operations, a guy by the name of Ted Phillips, of whom I am not a tremendously big fan. Ted got up at his press conference and talked about the season. And he tried to explain to the media, he tried to put a good spin on everything. He tried to explain why we saw so much progress. He, he was really proud of the way we got out of that six-game losing streak. And fans are like, are you kidding me? You're the ones who got into the six-game losing streak. You know, like, you, can't, you can't make it smell good, Ted. You just can't. And in this press conference, he, he said this. I'm going to quote him here. He said, have we won? Do we have, have we won all the games we need to win? No, but everything else is in place. <laughs> everything else is in place? You're a football team. What else is there? It's the only thing that matters. Win football games. It's like those, you know, those things you see online. He had one job. Win the football game. Oh, we didn't do that, but everything else is in place. <laughs> Leading like every Bears fan and all the media to go, um, Ted, what, what else is there? I think the church needs moments like that where we say, what else is there? Oh, you know, nobody's getting saved, but trust me, everything else is in place. <laughs> Really? <laughs> Angie, I like that laugh. <laughs> Nobody's getting saved, but you know, we're, we're, we're good with everything else. Everything else is in place. Nothing else matters. If the reconciling work of God through Jesus is not taking place, nothing else matters. That's what we do. Yeah. That, uh, I'm struggling here. That's what we do, right? My goodness, that's, you know, Mimi, we baptized, Mimi, where are you? there you are, girl. We baptized Mimi last Friday. She shared one of the most beautiful testimonies I've ever heard. Her family was here out of state. That's why we did it on a Friday morning instead of on a Sunday morning. And Mimi just started sharing with her family about how God has changed her and transformed her in recent days and in recent years. And what a, what a, what a tremendous celebration, right? Those need to be the most exciting moments in our existence when we just celebrate the reconciling work that God is accomplishing through Jesus. We had 20 kids come to CORE last Wednesday. I think that's pretty cool. I think it's cooler that Mimi got baptized. You know what I'm saying? 
We have had our finances stay above water and even grow throughout the pandemic. All right. I think it's even cooler that lives are being changed. You know what I'm saying? We need to make sure, who is it that said the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? And in too many cases, I think the church is missing out on that. It all starts with Jesus. He's the means of salvation. That's what we're here to do. I'm glad you have a good time at church. I'm glad so many of you are like, I love my church. I'm glad you hang out. I'm glad you're friends. I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad. What's the main thing? What's the main thing? What's the main thing? We need to be part of that process. And the only reason we can be part of that process is because Jesus has made it so. Let me say this. He is the means of restoration. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you the story of all eternity. And I'm going to do it in about 20 seconds. Challenge accepted? All right, here we go. All eternity, boiled down into 20 seconds. God created the entire universe. Everything was in perfect order. The universe only knew peace. Then sin entered the universe and it upset God's perfect order. But through Jesus, God established the work of restoration, which is to say he is setting everything back into its perfect, proper place. I think I did it, about 20 seconds there. That's, that's the story of all eternity. That's the story of eternity. What's happening now is God is established. He's, he's in this restorative process. Sometimes we call it recreation. He is setting everything back into its perfect, proper place. And how is he doing it? He's doing it through Jesus. Here's how Paul puts it again in verse 20. He said, he made peace with everything. He's setting everything into its perfect place in heaven and on earth. Peace with everything. Can I ask you guys a question? Does it seem like it? (laughs) I mean, if we're being honest here, does it seem like it to you? Does it seem like, yes, yes, all of the universe is at peace with God. Does it really seem like that? Let Let me see you one seam and raise you one context. Okay, let's talk about what Paul was doing as he wrote those words. Do we remember where Paul is as he's writing this this letter to the Colossians? He's in jail. He's in jail, right? And I don't think that they gave out nice, comfy orange jumpsuits, right? I don't think it was three hots and a cot. I know that's the military, not jail. Um, But I mean, let's face it, they're pretty similar. Paul is in a Roman prison, a prison in the Roman Empire. We actually aren't quite sure exactly where he was at this point. But he's in jail. And he's like, you know what Jesus did? Because he writes it in the past tense, didn't he? He doesn't say Jesus is going to do this. He writes it in the past tense. From jail, could you move over? You're kind of on my chains. I need to write this down. He writes, God was using Jesus and God reconciled. He made Peace. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? There's this wonderful little phrase that we've come up with. And it describes the restorative work that God is doing in this world. Here's the phrase. Already, but not yet. 
We, you, you'll see it all over when people write theology, when they write about the Bible. Already, but not yet. And here's what we mean by that. It is true that God already established his kingdom here. It is also true that the kingdom is not yet here. You say, well, how could that be? Those, th- those two things sound like opposites. But what we do as, as Christians... What we do as followers of Jesus is we take these two things that seem to be mutually exclusive. They seem to be completely opposite and we hold them together in tension. And we say, yes, by the power of God, it is already, but it is not yet. We say both of those things are true. That's why Christians sometimes, have you noticed this? Christians sometimes talk about things as if they are, even though all they are not. There's even a line, something to that effect in the Bible, isn't there? (laughs) Christians have a habit of doing that because we live in this place where we understand that the restorative work of God, here's another way you could say it, the kingdom of God is already. And it's not yet. It's not yet. Jesus made peace with everything in heaven and earth. And he did that because the kingdom is already. Does the universe know perfect peace today? Certainly not. And that's true because the kingdom is not yet. Both of those things are true. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news. Here's what we do with that. We, the people of Jesus, have the privilege, the unique and distinct privilege as living as people of the kingdom in its already state. We get to be the already people. We don't have to wait for the not yet. The rest of the universe is waiting for not yet. Some of them don't even realize they're waiting for it. Some of them are hoping it never gets here because they're in rebellion against God. But we, the people of God, we don't have to live in the not yet. We get the privilege of living in the already Here's what that means. Because of the restorative work of Jesus, we can receive supernatural healing, physical healing I'm talking about today. We don't have to wait for it. We say, well, okay, I know that we get that in heaven because the Bible clearly says that there is no disease, there's no pain in heaven. But we say, no, 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 no. The kingdom is already. So that's why we have the prerogative of expectation of healing in the here and now. Here's what else it means. It means that we can can know a peace that passes understanding in the here and now. People say, okay, no, I get that. That will be in heaven because in heaven there will be no strife. We will be at peace. And we say, yes, but we are an already people. Okay, we don't have to live in the not yet of heaven. We live in the already of heaven. So we can know the peace that passes understanding now. We say, well, we can be inwardly renewed day by day. The Bible says outwardly we're wasting away. I mean, we're just looking awful, but inwardly, oh, come on now. We are being renewed day by day. It's happening now. The world says, well, we get that you're looking forward to that in heaven because in heaven there will be no death. There will be no decay. But we say, no, we aren't a not yet people. We're an already people already. We are being renewed day by day. I'm just getting warmed up here. We say we can be comforted in our sorrow here and now. The rest of the world mourns, but we don't mourn like they mourn. We can be comforted in our sorrow now. The world says, well, yeah, we get it because there will be no tears in heaven. Thank you very much, Eric Clapton. 
There will be no tears in heaven. But we say, no, we, we aren't waiting for that because we aren't living in the not yet of the kingdom. We're living in the already of the kingdom. So we can be comforted in the here and now. I got one more for you. We can live without fear of defeat. Now, we, we aren't afraid of being defeated in the here and now. People say, I know because you're hoping for heaven and someday you'll live in heaven and there's no enemy in heaven. We say, no, we aren't waiting for that. We aren't waiting for that. We're not a not yet people. We are an already people. We are already living without the fear of defeat now. That's how the kingdom works. Let me catch my breath. We can experience all of those things already. Already. Not yet, absolutely true. But that doesn't mean we can't experience them already. And why? Because it all starts with Jesus. It all starts with Jesus. As I close, I want you to think about this. What do we do at church? What, I mean, what do we, anybody ever ask you that? Juan, you go to church every week, we see you go. What do you do there, work on your RV? <laughs> no, he does that on Wednesdays and Thursdays. What do you do at church on Sunday morning? We can, most of us can describe it. Well, you know, we sing songs and we, you know, we, we, we talk with people, we pray. Pastor Blather's on for far too long. Says something about football, yells at Michael for cheering at the Packers. Then we all go home, right? Let's try and be a little bit more thoughtful about it. What do we do at church? Here's, here's what I think we do. We gather in God's presence. I think we tear down strongholds and we advance the kingdom, don't we? Like we were, any of y'all need a nap when you go home from church? You know why? Because we've been tearing down strongholds all morning. It's hard work. It's hard work. We participate in the miracle of salvation. That's, that's the fun part, isn't it? We do that and we participate in life as God intended it to be. Is this heaven? No, it's church. It's not even in Iowa. It's just here in Downers Grove. We, but that's what we're doing because of that already thing, right? We participate in life as God intended it to be. Those are the four things I came up with. Let me run through them again and just remark on each one. We gather in God's presence. Well, how do we do that? We do it through Jesus. He's the means of formation. He's, he, he's, he's how we do that. I said we tear down strongholds in order to advance the kingdom. How do we do that? We do that through Jesus. He's the means of subjugation or victory, if that's what you wrote down. I said we participate in the miracle of salvation. How do we do that? We do it through Jesus. He's the means of salvation. The last thing I said is we participate in life as God intended it to be. How do we do that? We do it, you know through Jesus, because he's the means of restoration. We don't get to be that already people if it weren't for Jesus, right? Everything revolves around him. Everything revolves around him. It all starts with Jesus. If he's not at the center of it all, if he's not at the beginning, let's use that head word again, right? If he's not the head, if he's not the source of what we are doing, doesn't matter. Fruitless, fruitless. But everything we do is something that starts with Jesus. Now, surely, 
The Lord is Lord over the entire universe, right? That was the first half of the poem. Surely that is true. But there are plenty of corners of the universe that are still in active rebellion against the King of Kings, aren't they? There are still plenty of spaces in this universe where people and powers are in active rebellion against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but not so in here, not in this place, not in God's house, not among his people. Hear this, not where his spirit dwells. Oh, no, 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 where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's no rebellion here, there's freedom. Not so in here, we say, because here in the church, it all starts with Jesus. Amen? Would you just pray with me? Lord, every time we pray, every time we read and we discover and we acknowledge and say, yes, this is what your word says, yes, this is good, Yes, this is true. Every time we do it, Lord, I sense that there is a gap between what is and what should be. And so even as we say, yes, 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 you are the center of everything, we need to pray, Lord, help make it so. Sick man who said, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. That's us. Both of those things are true. So as we say, you are the center of it all, as we say, Jesus, everything here starts with you. We can't make it so in, in, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our households. We can't make it so in other places. But when we are gathered by your spirit in your name, yes, yes, in this place, Everything starts with you. As we pray that prayer, we pray it in confidence. We pray it in strength. We pray it, Lord, under the inspiration and the power of your Holy Spirit. And even so, we say, God, make it so. Because it doesn't happen because we make it happen. It happens when we are yielded to you. When we are surrendered to you. When we are submitted to you, God, make it so. Thank you for reminding us today that we have gathered in this place, not because our alarms went off and we decided to show up, but we have gathered in this place because you were the means of our formation. You decided in your sovereignty, in your complete and unabridged knowledge, you, Lord, decided that Ronnie and Deb and Bob and Eddie all needed to be in one another's presence today if they experience your presence. You have decided, Lord, in your sovereignty and in your knowledge that you're going to change some lives today. The restorative, salvific work that only you can do is happening here. And so we yield to that today. And we praise you and we thank you, Lord, that we are a victorious people. Not because, certainly not, because we're strong 
or we're smart, or we're, I don't know, good looking. Whatever we got, God, it doesn't amount to anything. It's only because of Jesus. It's only because of Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to be glorified in our midst. That we would never add anything to the mix that edges you out. We're reminded that you are Lord, but you're also a gentleman. (laughs) You go where you're invited. And so we invite you to inhabit this place with your presence. Even as we think of this building as a sacred place, Lord, your spirit reminds us that we are that building. And so as we go from here, our prayer remains essentially the same. We invite your presence to indwell and inhabit because Jesus, it all begins with you. And so I would imagine that this evening or tomorrow morning or later in the week, we're gonna go to work, we're gonna go to school, we're gonna do a thing, we're gonna have a situation. It might be good, it might be bad, it might be indifferent, or whatever it is, Remind us in that instant, it all starts with Jesus. It all starts with Jesus. Nothing else matters. As we make that choice, as we arrive at that realization, in ever-increasing ways, Lord, we become that already people. Some of us are still waiting for the spoils of war, but we're not looking for a victory because the victory has already been won. The victory has already been won. So find your people faithful, find your people ready, find your people available, we pray today, in the strong, in the sufficient, in the central name of Jesus, we ask it. And everybody says, amen, amen. Amen. God's blessing be with you.